friends, you're listening to How the West Was Cast, a podcast dedicated to the best of the Western movie genre. Still like the damn fool, I see. It's like Christmas. Get over here. What Christmas in July? Seeing you. Yeah, let's see you laughing. As a kid. Oh, he's a tenderfoot that needed looking after. But now that you're here, we've got ourselves a real goddamn posse. I'll get my gear here. Army's going to take care of these killers. I'm just here to bring it home. Well, I ain't exactly got a home for you to bring it to. Lefty, Laura can't run that ranch without you. Well, seeing as you ain't exactly been around, and I think you understand my meaning, I don't figure how you would know that. I know one thing. You ain't changed a dumb but Well, listen here. I'm gonna bring back Edward's killer. And there ain't nothing that you can do about it. I'll keep you cold, old man. That was a scene from The Ballad of Lefty Brown, one of two recent westerns written and directed by Jared Moshe. And on this special episode of How the West Was Cast, we'll talk to Jared about that film and about his debut western, Dead Man's Burden. Hello, my name is Matthew Chernoff, and I'm a screenwriter and an entertainment journalist in Los Angeles. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson, a film historian and the chair of the Department of Film and Media Arts at the University of Utah. Now, before we continue, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Western Podcast. That's at, as in the at symbol, Western Podcast, all one word. Tell us about some of your favorite contemporary Western filmmakers, and we'll do our best to interview them on a future show. Okay, then. Andrew, when we first started planning this podcast, we talked about inviting guests on to discuss their work in the genre. And without question, the director that I most wanted us to speak with was Jared Moshe. I was fascinated by Dead Man's Burden when I saw it back in 2012. But my appreciation for his work really exploded in 2017 with the arrival of his second Western, The Ballad of Lefty Brown. That film's thematic resonance and its technical sophistication, coupled with its old-fashioned entertainment value, just blew me away. No wonder, then, that it's widely considered to be one of the premier westerns of the past two decades. So what are your thoughts about Jared's work? I agree with your assessment. I think he's one of the most interesting makers of western right now, maybe in large part because he seems committed to the genre. He isn't just about making one Western and calling it a day, he seems committed to establishing himself as a Western filmmaker. So he's made a couple and hopefully we'll get more. I agree with your assessment. I think he's one of the most interesting Western filmmakers, not only technically, as you alluded to, but also thematically. This is a, a guy who knows his stuff and is doing innovative and creative things with the Western. He's not just using it as a rhetorical punching bag to make comments about American history or the history of the Western, he's actually trying to say new things and tell new stories with the Western in, in a way that doesn't alienate longtime fans of the genre and potentially appeals to new audiences. He's just a great filmmaker. We're lucky to have people like him making Westerns. 
Yeah, I'm I'm really encouraged by how excited he still is to make them. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, he tweeted out the following sentence, and I quote, Sometimes I wish I could make a career out of making B-Westerns. And I mean, for a fan of the genre, if that doesn't make your day, I don't know what will. You know, it's funny, that, that kind of remark brings to mind somebody like, you know, say a John Carpenter, who when he began making films in, in the mid and late 1970s would talk about how he he just wished that he had been born 20 years earlier and he could have been working in Hollywood in the 50s instead. So there's certainly a, a precedent for that. The interesting thing, of course, is that Moshe has now made two Westerns. A lot of guys in the 70s, 80s, and 90s who talked about their love of Westerns never made an actual Western. So you got to give him credit. The fact, too, that he spent so much time on the film finance side of production, which we'll hear about in this interview, uh, before he made the leap to writing and directing Westerns is, I think, a really key to understanding how he's been able to put so much bang for the buck on screen in his movies. Simply in terms of the images that he's captured in Lefty Brown, it's just an incredibly polished piece of work that stands, I think, head and shoulders above a lot of very fine recent Westerns. It just looks so fabulous. Of course, the fact that it's also a really nuanced character study and a thoroughly original high concept it just makes it that much more interesting and exciting. Yeah, he certainly had the background to know what it would take to make a Western. And that's not an easy thing to do. It's not easy to convince people you want to make a Western. So he clearly had the financial acumen to pull these projects together. I was also really interested to hear him talk about his approach to the, the visual style of his films. He'll talk about how he, he doesn't actually like storyboards, but instead tries to, with his crew, watch a lot of Westerns and come up with this shared body of visual references that he can draw upon. It's a really interesting technique, but one that seems to lend itself really well, both to the Western and, and to his filmmaking in particular. Okay, then. I think it's time we say hello to Jared Moshe. Welcome, Jared. It is an honor to have you join us today on How the West Was Cast. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, when Matthew and I were talking about uh, recent Western films that we wanted to talk about, Ballad of Lefty Brown was right at the very top of the list, so it's great to have you here today. Thank you. Uh, I, there's, as my wife will attest, there's nothing I enjoy more than talking about Westerns. So I'm curious to hear about your early introduction to the genre. You were first exposed, I read, to Westerns at home, thanks to your dad, who's a big movie fan. Is that how that happened? My dad? Yeah, my dad's a big movie fan. He introduced me to foreign films and Westerns. I was a lot less traumatized watching The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly at 11 than watching Europa, Europa at 11. <laughs> <laughs> so one took a little bit more. But yeah, so my dad grew, is weird. Uh, we're like this Jewish family from New York. And uh, my dad, but my dad grew up in Greece. And what they had in Greece were from America were Westerns in the 50s and 60s. And that's what he watched. So he loved them. And so he and I would watch them together. And then uh, later on, as I went to college, I sort of my my teachers sort of expanded my knowledge of the genre. And I love I just sort of fell in love with the tropes of this crazy mythology that we have created for ourselves as Americans. 
Uh, were there specific titles that really jumped out at you that cemented your passion for the genre? So the ones my dad really introduced me to were a lot of the like the good, the bad, you know, the Man with No Name trilogy. He was really into the Man with No Name trilogy and that stuff. And then the ones that sort of cemented me into the genre as I like, well, the movie I remember cemented me in the genre was The Wild Bunch, which I actually didn't see until I got to college. And yeah, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you, I fell asleep watching it for the first time. And it had nothing to do with the movie. It had to do with the fact that the screening was after dinner, after track practice. And I was literally, you ate, I ran, I ate, I sat down in a dark theater. And within like four minutes, they were still in the bank. I think we were still in maybe the title sequences, like the ants hadn't eaten the scorpion yet. And I was like, out. <laughs> so <laughs> I uh, then watched it again and was like, that was the movie that was like, this is just incredible. I mean, the way he both deconstructed and built the genre in the same movie, it just uh, it just captivated me. And it kind of captured this. I've always been really interested in the point where like history meets mythology. And this genre is that in America. Yeah, that movie really is a rite of passage, I think, for pretty much every Western fan of a certain age. It's just the one that just hits you like a bomb at times. Totally. Though it's not the Peck and Paw movie that I introduced when I when like my wife and I was like, I'm gonna make you watch a Western. I do not introduce that Peck and Paw movie. And that's not the movie I watch. It's a different Peck and Paw movie. Uh Cable Hogue's pretty funny. Cable Hogue, yeah. Yeah. Cable Hogue is my intro to the genre for my was the intro for my wife and some of my friends. No, uh, Matt and I have talked about this, that there's Westerns that you might think are the best, but then there are Westerns you show your friends to get them interested in Westerns. Right. And those are actually two not so much overlapping groups. Yes. Though I do love Cable Hogue. I will watch that movie anytime I see it. Cable Hogue says, ask and ye shall receive. Cable Hogue says, seek and ye shall find. Cable Hogue says, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Cable Hogue, a rugged breed, the pioneer, pitted against the relentless wilderness, face to face with irresistible forces of nature, battling the overwhelming odds alone with little more than naked courage and his bare hands, resting from the heartless wasteland, <laughs> a place to call his own. This is the pioneer. This is the man whose faith, stamina, and risk capital conquered the frontier and carved the Wild West into a nation. This is the Ballad of Cable Hope. Welcome to Cable Spring. What did your friends make of your interest in Westerns? Were they, I mean, it's such a niche genre that I can't imagine a ton of them were were on board, or, or were they? No, they would rather watch, like, whatever we could watch on HBO. And this is stuff I would tend to watch either with my dad at night, or I would, like, record on TCM on VHS and then watch on my own. This, my film friend, my friends who are into film wanted to, like, talk about, like, Fargo. Right. They were like, you know, we're trekking to the city. We want to see Fargo. We're going like that indie stuff, which was really amazing. And I love that stuff, too. But like the Western thing wasn't something that I felt in high, you know, when I was growing up, they were like, I didn't really share with people. And then in college, it was something that people were like, OK, Jared likes Westerns. That's odd. 
I remember I'd like show them a scene from a Western. I had friends come over and I'd show them like a scene from a Western. They'd be like, they'd humor me for about six minutes. And they'd be like, great, thanks. Do you have a particular favorite era of Westerns? I, I know everybody always asks about the specific film, your favorite film, but but they evolved so much over time and each decade brought a, a new focus or a slight different style to it. When you're in a mood for, to put one on, what what do you tend to gravitate towards? What era? I tend to either gravitate towards sort of like classical, like Ford, like a John Ford, or even like the 50s, which is like a slightly, you know, like a good Anthony Mann or Bud Bodeker or something like that. Like, a, you know, so like the classical Western and then a slightly more psychological, or I just want to watch like, like a Peckinpah Western. One thing that strikes me about your films, and I, I said this to Matt before, is when you watch your Westerns, you get the sense you're watching movies made by people of someone who not only understands, but actually likes Westerns. <laughs> Which is, isn't always the case. A lot of people use the genre as a kind of way to comment on American history or the genre itself. So it doesn't surprise me that you – do you see yourself more as like a classical Western filmmaker? When you set out to make a movie, do you, do you, do you think more of those periods? Yeah, I do because I think that's where the, um, the Western was defined in a lot of ways. I, I think every understanding of the West was created by John Ford, most of it in Stagecoach, uh, you know, where he took – his conception of civilization and morality and put it in this microcosm of a stagecoach and defined literally every trope and every character that would we'd see time and time and time again and gave them depth and made them into actually like fully formed human beings and showed how these outsiders could become a community. So I definitely sort of lean back towards that sort of period is sort of a touchstone. But like, you know, for Lefty, one of the things I was like, well, what happens if you take the John Ford characters and you put them in more of like a Peckinpah-y world a little bit? But like, you know, I think when people think about Peckinpah, they think about that operatic violence. Well, you know, let's just have lots of blood and be like crazy and spurts and when I think about what Peckinpah is doing with the end of the wild bunch or any of his, you know, real violence is what he's doing is he's trying to convey the experience of being in a very violent, bloody, pretty awful experience in a way that is both captivating and puts you in the place of the characters. And for me, that was like with Lefty, it was like, okay, using Steadicam and being with our characters and experiencing the action from their point of view. So you don't, as the audience, have this like 360 view of what's going on, you're experiencing their perspective, which is what Peckinpah does at the end of the Wild Bunch. He just does, you know, you're always looking at these people and seeing their feelings rather than just getting lost in the opera. I mean, he does that in you know, Ride the High Country as well, which is another film like Lefty Brown, which is about men who find themselves in changing times. And what do you do when you're no longer needed? I love Ride the High Country. I literally just referenced it in the pitch the other day about something completely unrelated. And people are like, what are you talking about? <sighs> That's sad. Do you, do you find that a lot in this industry when you're in meetings and, you, and you're referencing Bud Buttaker Westerns and people just have this blank look? Sometimes, yeah. I find I, my mind goes to Westerns a lot as reference points. You know, in this case, I was like the relationship between, let you know, one guy wants to bring back the gold and one guy wants to steal it. I do find that people's knowledge of the genre is very limited. It depends who I'm talking to. I find that there are people in the indie space who are actually re like really love like Bob Bodeker and love those sort of more off the beaten path 
Westerns and will talk to you about Johnny Guitar or, you know, Ride Lonesome forever. I do find, though, when I talk to like in sort of meetings, I'm trying to reference a movie in relation to the Western genre. People have a very specific understanding of what it is, and it's often not what a Western actually is. Right. I mean, I, I usually find there's there's like the, the popular culture, Marlboro Man, mm -hmm. Wild West vernacular, which is very different than what the Western actually was. Yeah, I do also find that you have a lot of people who took Tombstone, which I think is a really cool movie. I, I totally love that movie. I remember loving it growing up um, and I love watching it and works really well, but like kind of took the lesson from Tombstone that a Western is an action movie. They forget, like, they like the one-liners and sort of that, and then they like the action, and they forget sort of a lot of the meditative parts of that movie or, like, the slower parts of that movie, and they're more concerned with Kurt Russell firing them. Does he have a shotgun outside the train station, or does he have a rifle? I don't remember. And, you know, hell's coming with me. Yeah, that's what they remember, and they think of that. And then you get these Westerns that are essentially action films with cowboy hats, which is not what a Western is. Maybe that's what happened to Kasdan's Wyatt Earp. Uh, everybody was so jazzed up with Tombstone and its kind of eminent quotability. And then you get this brooding, dark, slow-paced biopic that put everybody to sleep who saw it, even though it's one of my favorite Westerns of that time period. I was wondering about that movie in particular. Since Bill Pullman is cast in Lefty Brown, did Wyatt Earp ever come up while you were... Oh, yeah, he would tell me stories about Wyatt Earp all the time. Some I will not repeat here. But he was telling me lots of stories about Wyatt Earp. And then we often actually, you know, he did a... He, he directed a... Uh, TV movie, a version of The Virginian with Diane Lane. So we talked about that a lot, but more so we were trying to create our own experience. So we talked about like Wyatt Earp was interesting. Also Wyatt Earp was interesting because actually some of the supporting, like some of the random, like the gang members turned out to be, were in Wyatt Earp back in the day and knew like Bill. So it was funny because like there's, you know, just this small group of character actors from that period, especially in that Montana area. But, you know, I think we talked about the pacing of Wyatt Earp at times and how that movie tried to really get into the heart of the characters much more so than get into the reality behind the mythology. The cowboys are finished, you understand me? I see a red sash, I kill a man wearing it. So run, you curse. Uh, run! Tell all the other curs the lie's coming. You tell them I'm coming! And hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! So jumping ahead to Dead Man's Burden, you'd been working in independent film for several years producing these highly acclaimed documentaries and dramas. So what prompted the decision to try your hand at writing and directing a feature Western? So I'd always wanted, I'd always sort of gotten to this industry with the idea of I wanted to make my own movies. And, you know, I took jobs because I needed to take jobs. And I, you know, ended up in the world of film sales. And then I ended up in the world of parlaying that into producing and learning how to like produce. And that was really great. Um, and then sort of the side, I sort of had different ideas in my head and was sort of putting off this idea of like making my own thing. It felt like very daunting. Like I knew how to put together a documentary. I understood the business side of it. And then I was at Sundance in 2010, and I had just, I had there with two films. Uh, one film was at Slamdance, and it was called Silver Tongues, and it was like a $200,000 indie. So I just had the experience of doing that kind of like micro-budget film. And then I was also there, I had produced this documentary on Roger Corman, 
And, you know, while working on Roger Corman, that, that Roger Corman movie, I was just basically like inundated with people from the Corman era, just in different interviews and everything, just in Roger, just go make it, go make it, go make it, go make it. So I kind of felt like at this point, I better I'll just try to make it. And I knew I always wanted to make a Western because that was like the genre that I loved. And you figure you're never, you know, in this industry, you never know if you're going to make more than one film. So I decided I'm going to make a Western and I left Sundance in 2000, I don't know, January. And I spent the next like six to eight weeks writing Dead Man's Burden. And we were shooting that. And I sort of wrote it doing like, all right, well, I know what I'm like. I just did a micro budget. I know what you can do in a micro budget. So how do I, I need to, I need to come up. I need part to think about like, all right, no locations or, you know, one actual set and then everything else could be desert, you know, limited number of characters because you can't dress people for Westerns very easily. You know, it's not like you can just be like, okay, roll in in your clothes, like a couple options and we'll just look at, you know, we'll mix and match and make a wardrobe that looks cool. It's like, oh no, you need to go to rental houses and do it right. And I wanted it to feel authentic and real. And so I set all these parameters for myself when I was writing that movie, you know, and at that point I was just very interested in exploring the myth of the civil war. And so that was sort of like, all right, I was feeling how like the repercussions of that war still existed in our country today. And I was like, wanted to explore that rift through a family. What type of response did you get from your colleagues and peers when they heard that? Oh, I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't. So what I did was I went and wrote it. And then I started approaching people really particularly, really slowly. Even when I was looking for my producer who I was going to partner with, I would reach out to friends and be like, hey, I have an indie. I'm looking for a partner who's a good line producer who could take the step up to producer. So I was very, I was no, very few people knew what I was doing. I mean, that same summer I was doing like a producing program for international productions, like talking to people like that. And I didn't tell, and like, it was not something, even when I was going to financiers, it was like, I went to financiers I had a very personal relationship with, like financiers I'd, who'd financed other movies before. And I could be like, I'm doing this. This is the budget. Can you do it? Rather than be like, all right, let's go out wide or let's hit people I don't know. So everything came through like a relationship, you know, and that's how I put together the entire thing. And then people started to sort of hear about it after it was done. And they were like, you made a Western? It was really weird. It was really weird, but it was great because everyone you then wanted to see it. kept it on the DL for, for what reason? Why, why were you? Uh... I don't know. It felt like I was doing, like, I feel like, you know, I was in the business side of film. Right. You know, I was known as the business side and I felt is that wasn't so much about the Western aspect of it as the like, oh, I'm putting myself out there as a filmmaker. I see. And I think they're going to think, you know, it's like, oh, you're a business guy. And you're trying to make a movie and it's not going to work. So I wanted them to see it before. So, I mean, one of the things that jumps out at me about that film is the cinemascope ratio that you use. Yeah. Shots of that long rifle that reach from one side of the frame to the other. They're just beautiful. What went into that decision? We wanted to shoot like two perf 35 in that cinemascope, super wide screen, natural wide screen. Because when you shoot two perf, you know, it's like you can't, there's no play area. It's like, that's it. Because I wanted it to feel really uh, gritty and authentic and have that like dirt that frame has and like be able to see when I'm composing my shots, what the widescreen is going to look like rather than, you know, and really the pluses and minuses of it. And the guns in that movie were so important. You know, that movie was set like a couple years after the end of the Civil War and every like understanding of Western guns is anachronistic. 
there's like everyone seems to have a peacemaker, which didn't exist at that point, or they had, you know, a, uh, a Winchester 73. We're three years before the friggin' Winchester 73. So, like, I wanted to capture those guns that they had. The one thing I wish I, I, we never did, but the actors and I always thought it would be just a great scene to really, we have like a little bit of it with David Call Hack and he's cleaning his gun, his Lamott. But, like, just like how much work goes into cleaning and loading these guns? You know, there's the there's the Henry rifle, the Golden Boy Henry rifle that Wade has in that movie. But the gun that um, Claire has, Martha, is like it was like what the the Southern Civil War rifle has. You could take one, sh- you know, two shots, or I think it was one shot, and it was super powerful, and that was it. And then you'd have to like dump it out, load it, and yeah. There's that great moment where after she shoots somebody, she r- literally reloads and just sits there tamping it down. It, it's it builds yep. suspense while she's refilling refilling yeah. the gun. It's great. Yeah, also, that was... you, you do great things in that movie. I, I mean, the, the fact that she's such a good shot is such an important plot point. And then also when you know a certain character actually gets their hand on the repeating rifle, you know that actually means something for the characters. So that you're right, firearms are thoughtfully used in the picture. Yeah, I, I, each gun, each character had a specific gun, and the guns were associated with them. And we really thought about what we were going to assign them to. And it was, I think, it's really important. You know, even you know the Lamat, uh, you know that really unique gun was like counting. We like you know when we were doing the gun chase at the end, we were like counting the shots very clearly, and you know a character was counting the shots. Maybe just going back to the cinematography, I had read somewhere that you didn't storyboard the film out, which makes it all the more impressive. So like what types of films were you looking at to to give you the images you, you wanted to have in the film? We were looking a lot at John Ford, a lot at like Stagecoach, a lot at like the Cavalry Trilogy stuff, which are actually not my favorite Fords, but visually they're pretty amazing. You know, and some of the Anthony Mann Westerns, like Winchester 73, that, that was more of a story thing. Um, but like, you know, we looked at like The Man from Laramie and stuff like that. I could definitely see some of uh, the Naked Spur in there, too, because yep, that's, Naked that's Spur. really, you know, Mann uses the widescreen in, in similar ways with staging things in the foreground and background. The way you Yeah. Do. Yeah. So like that was the other thing we were sort of looking at. I'd say those were kind of our main reference points. I find when you're working on a low budget, storyboards are, I mean, I don't, I'm not a huge, I think if you have a lot of money, storyboards are great. I think if you really want to work with what you have, you're better off just having an idea of what you want to shoot and having reference images and a shot list and figuring out like there, what is the most beautiful way to shoot that. One of my favorite images in the film takes place when Wade and Martha are talking outside about which side of the war he fought on, Mm -hmm. and slowly it begins to rain. Mm -hmm. I I never, I didn't notice the rain at first. And in fact, it looked like film grain as -hmm. it's falling there. And it fits that moment so beautifully. Was that just a natural occurrence or did you create rain? No, it was totally natural. Um, What you realize is when you're making a Western is you are kind of at the mercy of whatever the elements are. And you need not necessarily cover sets, but cover scenes <laughs> that fit the rain or the weather. And so that scene, we knew rain would be would work well for that scene. So when it started raining, we moved into it. But it was really hard because we had to keep blow drying Wade's hat to get it to work right. Because otherwise it was looking like it was really wet. And then it was really, you know, because like the rain was coming in different. um, Yeah. But, um, you know, so it's like being 
just sort of a little fluid that way and trying to take advantage of what nature gives you rather than fight it. Like, I don't know this is if people like notice this that really, but there's like snow on the ground at the funeral at the beginning. That was just because it snowed that morning and we had, couldn't get our, we, that was a crazy day. We couldn't even get our cars up. We had to like walk two miles up a hill. Yeah. Those, those tombstones at the, at the funeral are really striking. They're, I've never seen stones like that in a Western before. They usually look so perfectly clean or, um, was that based on a lot of research you did? And, and... so that was really the brainchild of uh, my production designer, Ruth DeYoung. You know, she came up on, you know, doing stuff on like Paul Thomas Anderson movies as an art director, or she worked on There Will Be Blood. And Ruth basically comes from this point of view of, all right, let's figure out, let's look at what works historically, but then let's figure out what these characters would have and what they would do. And we're like, all right, they're in the middle of New Mexico. There's nothing around them for hundreds of miles. They're not going to waste precious resources on building tombstones. Oh, wait, they have these rocks they would use these stones that we found in the area and like use rocks and we'd seen, and she found references to people doing that. So it was like sort of a combination of references and then trying to put ourselves in the point of view of the people. Yeah. I watched it again last night and that ending really, it's kind of a devastating ending. It, it caught me off guard. The first viewing that I had, I didn't realize you were going to go that dark with it without giving it all away here. But rewatching it again, it just seems like it's the inevitable conclusion of that story. Um, was that always the way you envisioned? No, I envisioned it. I wanted it not to end that way, but the characters wouldn't let me. That was just where it was going to go. Like I tried to think about how it would work, but some characters just don't want to change. When it comes to Lefty Brown, Andrew, you had a question about the location. Right. So I taught at the film school at Montana State University for six okay. years. So I can I can tell you firsthand how really inspirational it was for film students in Montana to not only see a film that was made in Montana, but actually set in Montana. And I actually had I, I, a handful of students who went on to make Westerns using some of the same locations oh, cool. uh, that, that you did. So that was it was a really big deal. But in, in terms of you know Montana, Montana is in some ways the quintessential Western state in our shared imagination, but very few Westerns are actually set in the treasure state. So what, what made you want to make a Western set in Montana? I kind of visited Montana and fell in love with it. I, you know, I, uh, I tend to write films kind of general, to be honest, and the, the Westerns and be like a little vague on the locations and then find a place I fall in love with. Like Dead Man's Burden wasn't really set in New Mexico. It was just kind of vaguely set. And Lefty was originally vaguely set, knowing I would look as I would scout, I'd find a place that I would fall in love with. And when I went and scouted Montana, I fell in love with like the history of Montana and the world of it. And I really wanted to craft some of the elements around Montana's history and around the world I had found there. And so that was really important to give it that depth of character. What do you think was different about being set in Montana as opposed to, you know, New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, those more conventional Western Well, locations? first of all, it doesn't feel like you're in the middle of the desert, even though it is the desert. Um, it has a much more unique sort of mountain to, you know, the landscape feels a lot more different, a lot more vast in its way. I think also Montana kind of still like it became a state, but
but it never stopped being West in the same, and you know, so that like, you know, it's a state, it's like the size of Germany with like what a million people. Yeah. It's insane. So to me that felt really compelling and the history of it, like was just, I don't know. I love the history there. I felt like, you know, everyone knows about all the cattle wars in New Mexico or the Johnson County war or what happened with Bill, you know, you know, all that stuff. People don't know about like the regulators in Montana or the, you know, some of the history there. It's incredible. And I feel like that was, is rife for actually more exploration. Did you happen to look at any Charlie Russell paintings preparing for the movie? Cause, you know, Russell is mm-hmm. synonymous yeah, we did. with Montana. Yeah. I could see that in the movie. Yeah. We looked at a lot. We looked at Charlie Russell and then we also looked at Remington of course. Um, but yeah, we looked at a lot of like Charlie Russell, just sort of trying to see the West and how he captured Montana and what Montana looked like in that period and trying, because like, I really like to embrace the grand tropes of the genre and then find ways to play with them. Now, in terms of Bill Pullman's involvement in the film, did he agree to play Lefty while you were still writing the script or did he come on after it was finished? What was that process like? Well, the script is never really finished. <laughs> But uh, he, I'd written the script, and Bill was kind of the dream for it, and so I, we got it to him, and he loved it, and he, you know, and then he and I collaborated on fleshing out the characters. We would sit there, we'd go through the script, we talk about the scenes, what worked for him, what didn't work for him. We'd talk about why I thought a character would do something. He'd tell me why he thought the character would do something, and we would really, you know, collaborated to craft both the character. And, you know, what was going on in a way that felt true to both of us, because I think it feels true to both of us and it feels true to the audience. One of my favorite things about the movie is Lefty's character arc. So we're, we're introduced to him as a sort of bumbling sidekick who's familiar to us from Westerns. But then he has this journey where he goes from sidekick to hero, which is really a, a process of rediscovery. Mm-hmm. So, you know, through his relationship with Jeremiah in particular, we learn as he both recounts these stories and also kind of rem- reminds himself that he was actually part of this company of heroes, but then ended up literally written out of the stories that mm-hmm. he was a part of, which to me was a really novel take on the on the fairly familiar, you know, here's the dime novel. Or it wasn't like that kid. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you, you thought about that arc and how you developed the character where he came from? The character came from this idea of basically Walter Brennan in Rio Bravo, where you have this sidekick character who's really, it's Walter Brennan in a lot of these movies, you know, Gabby Hayes or whoever you want to say. But like, I felt like in Rio Bravo, you have this guy who everyone makes fun of, who's considered a joke, who's basically, it's like, you know, John Wayne is in the jail with Stumpy and it's like, you're basically like John Wayne, but you're by yourself. What do you have? He almost shoots Dean Martin. He, you know, everyone's laughing at him. He's the utter joke. Yet, when push comes to shove, he's the dude in the jail with the shotgun, the last line of defense. So if everything falls apart, who's left but Stumpy? And for some reason, and it's never examined in any of these movies, John Wayne, the hero of all heroes in Westerns, relies on this crazy old sidekick more than anyone else. And I wanted to find out why. Stumpy, you got any tobacco? No, I give the last day work to do. To use it up fast. You got to get some for yourself. But what I'm asking is why you're picking on Duke. All right, be nice to him and he'll fall apart in small pieces. Well, maybe you're right. You know him better than I do. 
I guess some folks are built that way. But that wouldn't work with me, not for one minute. You could at least have a kind word for me now and then, considering what I have to do around here. The sweeping and the cooking and the, the nursemaid and that killing back there. Not even a thank you do I get. Maybe you're right, Stumpy. Huh? You're a treasure. Well, <laughs> I don't know what I'd do without you. <laughs> yeah, well, I... kind of suggesting that John Wayne was like standing in the way of these guys all those years. And if only they were out of the way, these sidekicks would have become heroes. I mean, it's kind of like the, this great what if take on a, a very familiar Western scenario. I don't know if I'm saying that he is standing in the way. I think he saw, he's the person who saw something in these characters that no one else saw in themselves, especially this character. But I do think he does stand in the way in the sense that like, it's a lot easier as a side. Life's a lot easier as a sidekick because you don't have to make the tough decisions. John Wayne makes the tough decision. You know, Edward Johnson makes lefties. You know, lefty doesn't have to hang anyone. He can just complain about it. It's it's easier. You can kind of like you have like a pl- like plausible deniability in a weird way in your own life. You don't. You, you everything's kind of taken care of for you, and you're shielded a little bit from the true grossness and roughness of the world. And so when John Wayne or Edward Johnson goes away in Lefty, now Lefty has to face all the realities of really what people think of him, of really what the world is, and grow into the person that Johnson always saw, the potential that Johnson saw him could be. In terms of its tone and pitch, Lefty's voice in the film is very specific. It tells us a lot about who he is and how the world sees him. Did Bill Pullman come up with that himself? Did he give a bunch of different versions and you and he narrowed it down? How did that process work? We talked through it. It was, you know, I think Bill brought a lot to it. You know, he spent a lot of time studying it. You know, he spent a lot of time studying limps to get Lefty's limp. He has a great story about how he like saw a woman in a limp through an airport and like was following her to like, you know, watch her limp. And then like she saw him and it was really weird. And then thank God her daughter recognized him as an American actor. And was like, oh, and he could explain himself. Um, but like he came up with like ways Lefty could talk and then he would run them by me and then I would have notes. And then we would do different takes as we were sh- when we were shooting where he would bring it up and then bring it down. And so we had room a little bit to figure out what at what moment we could go a little stronger and what moment we could take it back. He brings such a wealth of knowledge and experience to any project at this point. What was he like as a as a collaborator on this? Oh, he's the best. Bill was the best, and I would love to work with him a million times over. Um, he and I, it was he was like a partner, you know, and he was a huge collaborator. He loved, uh, you know, he was on the, the one day he wasn't shooting in the movie. He was on set just hanging out with his family. It, it, it really was a partnership in so many ways, and he's just a great human being. And there's a lot of, there's a fun game you can play. I think we do it on the, if you ever watch the commentary track where we point out all the Pullmans, like his family or like a cousin or his brother who happened to be in the movie as an extra because, you know, we were shooting randomly. This was totally random that like our main hero location, like the Johnson Ranch happened to be like 15 minutes from Bill's Ranch. And it was not like, it, it was not, it was like he was closer than everyone else and he had nothing to do with it. 
like we had, so we had, we had scouted and I'd fallen in love with Bannock. And I was like, I want to shoot this movie and I want Bannock to be the town and stuff, but we could not find a house for the ranch. And like we drove around and I didn't like a lot of what was there. It felt either too fake or too Westerny or too just not real or didn't have the right scope around it. And then uh, our scout, we flew back and I wasn't sure if we're going to be able to do it. And then our scout was like, Hey, I found this one place. And he sent me a picture and it was like, Oh my God, that is the only place that works. And I said, Bill, and it's like, he's like, where is that? again and i was like it's uh and i told him and he was like that's 15 minutes from my house wow <laughs> easy commute yeah easy commute it was hilarious he had nothing to do with it and people in montana don't realize he had nothing to do with it they like think it was like oh he was it was no absolutely nothing he's something of a local institution so yes people would assume that he was the it's just fate yeah the film also stars Peter Fonda, who, of course, directed The Hired Hand, one of the the greatest hippie westerns ever made. At what point in the development process did you approach him for the role? And what can you tell me about working with him? So we had Bill, and then we got our, our financing, and then we started going out and filling out the rest of the cast. And for the role of that role, I really wanted someone who had connections to the genre. And Peter does both because of The Hired Hand, which is an incredible movie, and because of his dad. So we brought it to him, and he loved it. He loved that he, you know, dies. He was like, he called it his Brando death. He was super excited about it. It was great. Peter is, you know, having him on set, you're, I mean, Peter's a legend. You bring him on set, and he's got a billion stories, and everyone wants to hear him. And then you're like, oh, wait, we're making a movie. we got to start shooting. And I'm like, but those stories are so good. Can we hear more? Yeah. He's, he's great. He is an old school, he was an old school Hollywood actor who was, um, you know, brought, I think, a lot to that part. I can't imagine trying to tell somebody with that much history behind him how to play the scene or how you're envisioning it. I would just keep thinking you just hand it over to him and say, OK, what are we doing here? Yeah. You know, I, I think it's about having that trust. I think the key, one of the key parts of directing is having that trust with the actors to know that they're, each, they're bringing something and you're bringing something. He did know having, I mean, his knowledge was insane. He, like, I remember when he first showed up on set, my DP came over at one point. I, he was like, I think Peter knows more about cameras than some of the camera department. You know, he came up in that Corman world where everyone did everything. Once you had cast him, did you begin to make some changes to his role to create some of those connections to uh, his? I, his I do that for every character. Every time I create cast an actor, I try to do a pass on the script that reflects that actor a little bit more. Um, that's just kind of, I think, an important part of the process so that it feels correct. So you're not trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. I tried to do that on a, a mini series I wrote for the Hallmark Channel called Shark Swarm about killer sharks. When they cast Daryl Hannah as the heroine, I looked her up and I realized she was a surfer. Mm -hmm. So I wrote in this entire extra surfing scene where she's fighting the sharks on, on a surfboard. And she just said, I'm not doing a surf scene in this. That's my own private life. doesn't always work. doesn't always work. I think in Lefty Brown, it works really well because that first scene in particular is, is real Bravo in some ways, but it also, you know, very resonant of uh, My Darling Clementine in some other mm -hmm. ways too. So it's a really interesting melding of those two. Yes. You know, it was like, I did, I did once we got Peter, like rewatch a lot of Henry Fonda performances and just tried to find references in that world. 
I was surprised that this was the first Western that Kathy Baker made. She's yeah, got me such too. A, a perfect face for the, the genre. She, she always reminds me of that, or at least in your film, she reminds me of that migrant mother photo, the Dorothea Lang picture. Yeah. She's like right out of that, that time period. What was she like on the set as well? What- Kathy's the best. She's fantastic. She, um, yeah, I, I remember I got on the phone with her and she was like, I've never done a Western before. And I was like, did I hear that right? Like, she belongs in this genre. And she had so much of a load to carry because she doesn't have a huge amount of scenes, but she is really the foil for Lefty's journey. And that she understands, she has a very specific, she's the voice of a lot of understanding of who Lefty is. And she has to carry that weight of the film. And for me, Kathy was just perfect. She could come in, she could do it, and she was super professional, and she brought so much depth to the role. I mean, the other thing that I loved was when I first talked to her, she, like, totally called me out and said, so she's the only woman in the film. And I was like, yeah. And she said, why is she the only woman in the film? And I sort of, you know, and I had to, it's like she made me explain it. And, you know, we spent a long time talking about Mary Goodchild, who basically after her husband died, who was this, you know, you guys know probably who he was, right? Like a big, he was the guy who um, Tommy Lee Jones was based on and Lonesome Dove was based on. Uh, this huge rancher out of Texas. And Mary Goodchild basically lived on his ranch. They had no kids. They chose not to have kids because he was always going, you know, and uh, her best friend lived 50 miles away. She saw her once a year. After he died, she made sure to take over the ranch and keep it running. And she didn't, you know, she lived this ice, like this white, like this is what her, this is, she was, had her fiefdom and it was her life, but she was the, like, there was no women for her to interact with because this was not a world with a lot of women out here on this frontier. And so like that, so actually, you know, we look that, I think she, she read, I don't remember what book about Mary and that became a very important touchstone for us. She really goes through this massive change after Edward gets shot. But once she takes over the ranch and she's the one in charge, something about her just seems bigger. She's such a tiny person, but she just looks so much more imposing. Like you you could imagine this crew of guys doing what she asks. She has presence. Yeah. Like she had, Kathy brings a lot of presence. And um, that was one of the, all the things I've always loved in her as an actor. She can, you know, she has these different sides that she can bring. So um, we were talking about hats earlier, and I'm really obsessed with Western characters' hats and what That's they an note on each person. Yeah, Matt um, loves hats. Um, <laughs> so Lefty's hat, it might might as well just be the perfect hat. The <laughs> upward slant is just is great, and it it contrasts so beautifully with Peter Fonda's sort of side eyed lower angle hat. Can you talk about where that particular hat came from and and why you chose it? Putting hats on actors is like. This whole thing, because you can have an idea of what a hat is and then you put it on it. Like this could be like, this is the perfect hat. And then you put it on an actor's head and it just doesn't fit their face. And you don't know that until you get there. Johnny Prey, our costume designer, basically he and I went through and he picked out like, he probably picked out a hundred hats. And then I narrowed it down to like 70. And then we just started putting them on Bill. 
And we like, it was literally like trial and error until we found the right hat that we could. And then, you know, I think the fold was actually Johnny's idea, like to fold it up a little bit. My big note was like, he's had this hat for a billion years. He's re-sewn it. He's the kind of guy who like is very handy and he'll re-sew everything and re-wear everything. And he's so nostalgic. He never wants to throw anything out. Like if he, he, if he was today, he'd have to be like a hoarder. And so the hat we came up, it was like finding the right hat of the ones we picked that Bill looked right in and then sort of styling it in how it would be like reflect his character. Mm -hmm. You know, this guy who like, this is his hat. It's been his hat since he was, you know, first met. It's probably the hat he was wearing when he first met Johnson. And he was like, oh, this is my hat with Johnson. Oh, I love that backstory. That's really great. Now, on a film like this, where there's so much action, do they have replacement hats ready for him? Or are there a slew of them? Or do you just have to guard that hero yeah, hat? We didn't have a huge budget. So I think there were a couple hats that had doubles, but not a lot. Luckily, like the, he didn't have that many moments where there was blood and hat together. Okay, and my my final hat question. I'm sorry to keep doing this. It's <laughs> to conclude the hat portion of the interview. Where is where are they today? Like, where does that end up? Does it show up in the Autry Museum? Do you, does Bill keep? No, it? they go back. Uh, I don't know if Bill kept that hat. He might have. Uh, they usually end up. A lot of the costumes just ends up back at the where at the costume. But yeah, we uh, you know you keep it until you finish like knowing you're not going to do any reshoots, and then you're like, all right, give it back, or you pay for the loss and damage and keep it yourself. I think Sam Neill Instagrammed out a picture of his Jurassic Park hat uh, the other day as they started filming and wrote his little caption, hello, old friend. It was very touching. <laughs> I, thought, so I can imagine, Bill. Um, the pace of the film is really, I think, one of its biggest strengths. Uh, the scenes and shots unfold over time and really allow you to emotionally connect with what you're seeing. With that said, were you under any pressure from anyone to like add that kind of uh, faster pace to the film or, or were you uh, free to, to deliver it the way you wanted it? So I got no pressure from my creative partners, the producers or anyone else. I mean, there were moments when they were like, there were things we either like this scene needs to be cut or like we realized that like stuff needed, to, but like it wasn't like overall changing the pace. It was more like, oh, well, we don't need this beat or this, you know, like typical editing stuff. I did sometimes when we were like starting to submit to festivals and figure that out. I got a note like it needs to be five minutes shorter. It needs to be five minutes shorter. It needs to, it can, you know, like cut this or, you know, like. And to me, that rhythm and the pace of it was really important for what I was trying to achieve. And I do think it sort of also gives a sense of authenticity to the world. I mean, the world was slower back then. Let it be a little slower. You talked earlier about you know, the idea of Westerns as being contemporary action films in, in period garb. I mean, to me, what I, I like about the film is it, and this is maybe this is the Peckinpah and you, you actually feel the violence more palpably because it really does punctuate these longer periods of silence and, and contemplation. And I think that's something Peckinpah did. Not that you approach Peckinpah levels of violence in this movie. No, but I think that's definitely something I was inspired about. Like violence should be, you know, action should, the, when someone fires a gun, that is a really powerful act and it should be violent and shocking and we should capture it that way and not make it feel like it's just sort of a toy to fire. Like, it's really important. I remember like, I never really fired a gun. I fired a gun once in my life, but like I wanted to, before I shot Dead Man's Burden, like, I shot all the guns. I went out and made sure I knew what it was to shoot all these guns. And then I remember I took all the actors and we sat on the location and we all fired the guns so we could, they could know what it is and like treat the guns as actually with respect, you know, and I think you have an obligation to do that as a filmmaker. 
I, I think too, one thing I, I like about the film, and this is really something Western started doing really well after Unforgiven was, you know, showing that there are consequences to violent actions, that it's, it's not as glamorous as you, as the stories might be. Yeah. It's a hell of a thing killing a man. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, uh, I think that's something that's important to explore. You know, I think Unforgiven captured that in the perfect way. But I do feel like killing someone is a major act, unless you're making like a Sergio Corbucci sort of ridiculous thing, you should embrace what it is to kill. Um, And I'm not trying to make I'm trying to not make Westerns where there's a clear good and evil. I mean, I think everyone has their perspective. And, you know, they all no one wants to kill anyone. They're all doing it because they think they're supposed to. Well, even you know, Jim Caviezel's character, when he's about to be hung, you know, he says, they're going to erect statues to me in this state. It, it's not as though death clarifies anything for anyone. It's still just as murky at yeah. in that moment. Yeah. And that was really important. Like, it's going to be, you know, one of these things where, like, violence isn't really an answer. Well, that, right. It also doesn't, it's not going to change the course of history. Nope. Right. Just a moment. And now, one of my favorite scenes in the film uh, is the one where Lefty buries Edward's rifle by himself outside and, and says these mournful words. Uh, it, it looks like a Terrence Malick film. It's so stunningly beautiful. The sky behind him, this kind of dark, stormy clouds are just, just gorgeous. And his performance is so heartbreaking that when you're standing off camera watching this take place, can you actually enjoy that moment? Or are you just looking at your watch, trying to figure out how you're going to get one more setup in because time is such a crunch because that's such a, a precious moment taking place there? I have to turn off that part of my brain that says, stop worrying about the time and setups, because otherwise that'll take over. So at that point, I had, we had two setups. Basically, we knew how we were going to shoot it, and we knew how we were going to capture it, and we knew how much time we had. And for me, it was about watching, getting the right moment, and making sure I was getting that feeling. I knew I had the right take when my script, he started crying. Really? Yeah. Wow. I knew we had it at that point. Yeah. That's all, all, all you need to know. <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, but you know, you know, so there are moments when it's like, oh, we're running out of time and we have to just, all right, this is what we're doing. We're doing this, 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 and this. And like the gunfight in the reeds when they're on their skivvies, like that was like, oh my God, we got to go. But like, there's less performance in that moment. So it's like, where is the next squib? Why didn't the squib go off? Where is the guy? Like, you know, like get him in, you know, all of that was crazy. And so it, uh, so like that, I was like watching the clock and watching the time, but it was like, a, it's a different sort of directing. Whereas, you know, the moment with Bill or even the moment when they come back and with Johnson's body and Kathy's there, it's like, I need to worry about like getting the thing that feels right in the actor. Cause if we don't have that, it doesn't matter if I have extra shots, I'd rather get one take that's perfect. Now, a lot of Westerns these days are shot digitally, and even the beautiful ones, just it, there's something lost there for me as a viewer. But you shot Lefty in 35 millimeter, and the effect is striking. Uh, what went into that decision, and what kind of challenges did that present? Because uh, Westerns don't look right if they're shot digitally. I would like, actually, I, would, I wouldn't mind like shooting another one. And just like, but it wouldn't be this kind of movie. It would have to be like kind of like that Corbucci tile thing with like, and shoot that digitally and see if I could make something cool that way. But generally, I, I tend to stick to the belief that like a Western doesn't, it's what exactly you said. I don't know. I can't explain it. I can't quite put my finger on it, but they don't look or feel right when they're not shot on film. And it's very unique to this genre. 
digital ones. There's just like a weird, I don't know, it's not flat knit. I don't know, je ne sais quoi. Um, so I, I mean, shooting film was something I knew I was going to do going in. Of course, I had to fight uh, with the financiers and we budgeted it out and it came out, you know, it was a little more money, but there's something also about like shooting film where everyone's on their A game a little bit more. I remember like, because you, you know, you know, even when you're shooting digitally, every shot is money because it's time. But like when you're shooting film, it's like every shot is money because it's money. I remember on our first day of shooting, it was our first scene was like uh, the scene where Tommy and Jim are by their horses and Tommy's telling Jim that he's going to go out and go after Lefty. And we did like the first take and Tommy was like a little off. And then we did the second take and Tommy suddenly stopped. And it's like, what's that sound? And I was like, that's the camera. And he's like, <laughs> you're shooting film? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, why didn't anyone tell me you were shooting film? And he was just like, boom. Suddenly it went from like, all right, A game, instantly. No, like, plan, you know, it was like, and I, that mentality, uh, I think, is sort of universal with people when you're shooting film. It's like they're on their A game. So this might sound a little naive, but since so few Westerns get made these days, do you and your fellow directors who've made Westerns sort of chat with each other to give tips? Because how else do you pick up where the best horse wranglers are? Like, Do you get a call from Ty West, who directed In the Valley of Violence, saying, hey, do you have a guy who knows, uh, you know, cattle? (laughs) Sometimes there's just so few of us. I mean, there's, there's so few Western filmmakers that, and so few people make them. I mean, you do get those sometimes about like how you're doing, like just how to think about it, like, you know, but mostly, or like, uh, refer, like, can this costume designer pull it off or that? A lot of, you know, I think about Westerns is also, it's like, there are just, there's so few people who actually do it, like production wise that like, okay, you're going to New Mexico if you shoot a Western New Mexico, I can pretty much tell you which ranch. Like, I, like I'll watch it be like, oh, I got, you know, I know that ranch. Oh, I know where you're shooting that. Like, you can, you can tell and you know what's around it. And, um, you know, and what you're going to do, it's about your, the local person's going to be, you know, whoever you're, you're also going to be trying to pull in whatever favorite, like what, like the local people think is best at that time. And there's not that many, like there's one stunt guy in Montana, you know, you're going to use him. You know, it's just like, there's not that many. <laughs> but yes, you do have conversations like are you know about like costumes and because that I think is and more. I love to imagine you guys having this little club where you can uh, <laughs> a, a, a secret Slack channel where you can all talk to each <laughs> other about about where the best. I wish I wish there was more of a Western. I wish there was more of a Western filmmaker community, but there isn't because people make one. I think I'm one of the few people who made two. I was talking, I was at a party once and I started talking to Quentin Tarantino, actually. And he said anyone, any real Western filmmaker needs to make three Westerns. That's what his, like, to be a Western filmmaker, you need to make three. I have another one I want to make, but not right now. That um, was, that's where I was leading next is um, to sort of wrap things up here. Your next project is uh, apparently a science fiction film, which I'm assuming you can't really talk about at this stage. So what are the chances that we might see a third Western in the future? Hopefully good. I have a third one that, I mean, I get approached by for directing Westerns sometimes. And, um, you know, so like that happens on occasion. Um, I haven't found one that I felt like would be fun yet, but I have another Western that is in my soul that needs to be told. I have the pitch. I haven't written the script yet. I pitched it to a couple places and, uh, that one's going to get made. I hope so. Without, without prodding you, too much. Could you tell us sort of some of the spiritual 
uh, precedents for this next Western? Because we can point to different Westerns that have inspired your first two. Uh, obviously, Unforgiven, Peck and Paw, The Man Who Shot Liberty Val, and so so real Bravo. So what what could you give us? Maybe two or three that you're. I'll give you one. Okay, Sergeant Rutledge. Ah, um, fascinating. <laughs> okay, okay, <laughs> good. That's good. <laughs> so, Jared, I just want to thank you again for taking some time to talk to us today about your work. I hope it's obvious how much Andrew and I admire your films, and we were just incredibly excited to be able to talk about Westerns with you today. Honestly, it's amazing. I, lo I, I love that you guys love the movies, uh, which is awesome, and it's so cool when your work connects with people. And I just love, also love talking about Westerns. It's one of my favorite things to do. I was disappointed that you weren't at the Savannah Film Festival when I saw Lefty Brown there. It was such a great screening. I walked out, immediately tweeted about it, and you replied instantly from wherever you were at the time. It was it was wonderful. I really wanted to go to that festival, but it was like at that point, it was I think that might have been the same weekend as Woodstock, and Bill was getting a, an award at Woodstock. There was some other thing that like it was like that part was so crazy. Um, but I really wanted to go to Savannah because I. Yeah, that's an amazing festival. It's a great one, yeah. Well, thanks again so much for taking the time. I, I really course. appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the management. No picture in a mighty long time has had such an unusual and provocative dramatic theme as our next attraction. The name of this motion picture is Sergeant Rutledge. We recommend it to you enthusiastically. So, Andrew, how great is it to speak to a filmmaker whose knowledge and appreciation of the Western genre runs as deep as Jared Moshe's does? What a fun interview. Great to hear his insights, not only into his own filmmaking, but the way that it connects to earlier generations of Western filmmakers, Peckinpah from the late 60s into the 70s, and, and earlier filmmakers as well, Ford, Mann. What a fun interview. I find it really remarkable how detailed his memories were of those projects. I mean, some of them are, are many years old now, and yet it still feels like he just shot them the other day. You can tell how much thought and attention he gave to every moment while making them. Well, you really pressed him on both the firearms and the hats, and he was able to answer all those questions without missing a beat. So he got to give the guy credit. That was pretty good. And People are just going to be listening to the podcast and not seeing it, but behind him the entire time, he had a full display hanging on the wall of various cowboy hats. It was quite impressive. Yeah, which he explained to us was, was not a prop for interviews. That's just where he happens to keep his cowboy hats. Now, I'd say maybe one of the newsiest elements of this interview for for us, it was if it's obvious enough, was his little mention at the end of the interview about a potential third Western that he's playing around with. And that little nugget that he gave us about Sergeant Rutledge, I mean, that just made my day hearing that. Yeah, it's it's clear he's a guy who plays things close to the vest, which is fitting for a guy who associates himself with the Western. You know, when I asked that question, I wasn't sure if he was going to give us anything. But in giving us that one title, I, I don't 
know what to make of it. That could be so many things, but everything I can think of is exciting. So let's hope he does get around to making that third Western. Yeah. When you consider the current social and political climate in the country, a new Western that touches on some of the themes from Sergeant Rutledge could be fairly explosive. I think it could be the perfect subject for him to work with. I agree. Well, that about wraps things up for this episode. Until next time, I'm Matthew Chernoff. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson. And you've been listening to How the West Was Cast. Well, that was our show. We thank you kindly for listening and hope you'll come back again real soon. Till then, keep your saddle oiled and your guns greased. We'll be seeing you.